You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. The Apostle Paul has this little triplet of things that he says quite a few times. Actually, he's got a few little triplets of things. But one of them, and probably the most famous, uh, three things that he always puts together are faith, hope, and love. Most famously, in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13, these three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. And it's interesting that we can understand the three temptations uh, in the wilderness, the three temptations of Christ in the wilderness, in relation to these things, faith, hope, and love. Remember the first temptation we looked at uh, a few weeks ago now. Um, the devil was tempting Jesus to doubt what God said about himself, doubt God's word to him, both in terms of the command of scripture, but also in terms of his word to him through his providence that he was had good for him in all situations. Uh, the second temptation was a temptation against hope, to give up on that hope of the new Jerusalem, the redeemed church, the renewed creation, that picture of the heavenly city that uh, John sees at the end of Revelation, and to take, instead of that, uh, uh, that distant reality, to take hold of uh, an earthly reality, one that could easily graspable, a, a worldly kingdom, if you would just bow the knee. So temptation against faith and temptation against hope. This third temptation I would suggest to you this morning is a temptation against love, against love. And that's kind of going to be the theme for, for what I'm going to say to you this morning. So the devil took Jesus to the wing of the temple complex, not just the highest point of the the, the temple building itself, but the whole temple mount. Uh, the highest point, we think, was on the wall overlooking the Kidron Valley, some 20 stories high, um, and uh, it would have been pretty, a pretty precarious situation. And there he suggests him to throw himself down into this place where, interestingly, uh, the sacrifices in the temple that were discarded, the things that were left over would have been taken there, um, the devil's tempting him, using the words of Psalm 91. Surely God will send his angels to protect you. They'll lift you up on wings. They won't let you strike uh, your feet upon a stone. Why is this a temptation at all? I'm not sure if any of us were put in that situation. We go, oh, okay, then. <laughs> that seems like a tempting thing to do, right? I mean, it does take a, we're very familiar with the story, but it takes a little bit of imagination just to get into it and to think, really, what is going on here? What was going on here? Well, a picture came to me the other day of uh, what was going on here. I was watching a kind of series of funny videos on YouTube with Nathan. He likes to watch like near misses, you know, like almost car crashes. Actually, he likes to watch car crashes as well. But uh, <laughs> he likes to watch like near misses and um, like things that almost go wrong but turn out okay. And there's this guy. He's on some tourist in some tourist location. Looks like China on the edge of a mountain. And there's this precarious bridge with massive gaps in it. Uh, these huge slats and then like one slat missing or two slats missing and then he's attached to like a, a high wire with like a bungee cord behind him onto his back and the, the trainer, the guy who's running the attraction is sort of behind him like, okay, go and he runs across, like leaps across these gaps and there's hundreds of feet of drop beneath him gets to the other side, turns around to give the thumbs up to his trainer and the, the harness which is attached to his bungee just falls loose, it wasn't attached at all <laughs> So it was like incredibly, incredibly dangerous. They hadn't done their job. Um, little warning if you go on a kind of adrenaline adventures in other countries. What, what's going on with this temptation? I think the devil is almost trying to give Jesus a, say, look, you need a trial run. 
You need a, a trial run of, is God going to look after you? We need to make sure the safety equipment's working. You know, that's what, I think that's kind of his angle of attack. You know, after all, what the father was going to ask Jesus to do in the end was far more dangerous, far more extravagant, far more risky than throwing himself off the wing of the temple complex into the Kidron Valley where the, the old sacrifices, the remnants of the sacrifices were taken. You know, he was going to be asked to take up that cross, uh, walk to Calvary, to be tortured and humiliated in, in the most brutal of ways. You know, not just a moment of terror and then splat, but tortured and humiliated, dragged out, you know, have his best friends walk out on him, uh, you know, his disciples deny him, uh, all those things, you know, to be robed in that uh, and to be saluted, mock saluted by the, the soldiers. So all the, 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 the drawn out terror, physical terror of the crucifixion, the spiritual terror of being hung on a tree, so to be cursed by God outside the city gates, there's this, you know, if the Kidron Valley was a place where the temples, the temple sacrifices were discarded after they were used, then, you know, what God is asking Jesus to do by being hung on a cross was actually more dramatic because it was a, it was a symbol that every Jewish person would have understood to be, to be hung on a cross, a wooden cross made of the, the wood of a tree, uh, was to be cursed by God. So to enter into this cursed state, this is a really big thing God is going to ask him to do. And beyond that, Perhaps Jesus, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I think Jesus knows what's ahead. God is going to ask him not just to, to risk being thrown off and then to be caught by angels just at the last minute, to, but to actually die, to go through into death and to share in the most desolate of human experiences, to go to enter into the grave and trust that not only not that God would not let his feet strike a stone, not that the angels would bear him up on wings, but trust that even in death, God would raise him again. That is far, far riskier, isn't it? In terms of, you know, is God really going to come through for me than what the, te- the devil is suggesting? Now, I don't know how much the devil understood of that. I don't, I don't think the devil had insights into all of God's plans. I think he would have known that seeing Jesus as a perfect man, unblemished and holy and sinless since birth, he knows that in this life, a, a man who is trying to love God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, you know, is going to face extreme persecution. He's going to be asked to do things that are incredibly dangerous, are going to go through trials and sufferings, and maybe even face terrible, uh, the terrible threat of terrible death. Wouldn't it be nice, he's saying, to know, considering all these things you're going to go through, you're just at the start of your ministry, you've no idea how bad it's going to be. Wouldn't it be nice to know that God is going to come through for you? So what's the problem with putting God to the test? Why is this a temptation? Why is this a sinful thing to do? Um, there's some straightforward problems here. There's some straightforward th- things for us to understand about why it's wrong to put God to the test. It's, it's really, in the first instance, it's an attempt to place God in our power. Theologians have a word for this, theurgy, which you've probably never heard before. I just reminded of it uh, this morning. Theurgy. 
to, to try and place God in our power, to try and manipulate God. And uh, in a sense, it belittles his, who he is. You know, it's the atheist saying, if there's a God, then why doesn't he strike me down right now? <laughs> you know, and he's expecting a, a lightning uh, bolt to strike him down. Of course, God isn't going to do that, because to do that is to place himself under the command of the atheist. It's to step down from his mighty throne. It's to somehow, you know, uh, belittle himself. And that's obviously a wrong thing to do, isn't it? To do that kind of thing to God. And we can think of things that Christians might do to God, place ourselves in stupidly risky situations against God's commands in order to, to prove his love for us and so on. It also, not only does it place God in that situation, also it's fundamentally undermining of our relationship with God. You know, if you've got a relationship with someone, let's say you go around to a friend's house and you think, oh, I want to see if they're really my friend. I'm going to drop 20 pounds by their front door as I walk out. And if they return it to me, then I'll know that they're a real friend. Would you, you wouldn't do that to a real friend, would you? I mean, it's, it's just absurd, isn't it? Like, if you did that, it would not only reveal that your relationship wasn't as, as it should be anyway, but it would actually undermine the fabric of the relationship. If the friend found out what you'd done, there would be a, a breaking of that relationship. So it's kind of obviously a bad thing to be doing. And so Jesus bats away the devil's temptation with a simple, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which is straight out of Deuteronomy, as all his other rebuttals have been. So in one respect, this difference between what the devil is tempting Jesus to do and what God is going to ask Jesus to do is simply that. One is testing God, and one is not testing God, because it's perfectly within his will. But remember, these three temptations, are they're not just random things that the devil kind of comes to Jesus with. They're not just three random temptations. They can sound random on the surface, turn a bread into stone. You know, the second one, not so random. The third one, you know, it sounds kind of like a, just something the devil's plucked out of the air. But these are, if you like, archetypal. They're like the most significant ways that the enemy has tempted God's people throughout the ages. I think you would find these temptations essentially in the devil's temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden. You find them to Israel in the wilderness when they're being tried and tested and purified during that time walking out of Egypt to the promised land. And, and these are the types of temptations that face us too, which is why that faith, hope and love thing is, I think, so helpful. The devil will try and tempt us in terms of our faith. Do you believe, really believe what God says about himself? Do you really hope and trust? Do you have that certainty that God will come through and do what he's promised to do? That thing that's in the future, is that your vision of the future? And the third one is a temptation against love. That's the deeper thing that's going on here. The devil's temptation is not just to test God, but it's actually for Jesus to... At the root of it, this is what's going on. Actually, for Jesus to serve himself. To serve himself. The cross is the opposite of that, of course. The cross is pure obedience to the Father. That's love, isn't it? It's love. The cross is Jesus freely laying down his life for the Father and for our sake. He says that I freely lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. That's love, isn't it? That free action, that joining of not just obeying God because he said so, but obeying God because we delight to. But Jesus does that. And, it, and it's the consequences of the cross. It's, it's a, that's the salvation of the world. It's, it's the reason why you and I are sitting here this morning to worship and praise God. The reason why we have a hope and a future, the reason why we have eternal life is because Jesus obeyed the Father and freely gave his life. And he did it for you and me. That's love. 
That's the difference. What the devil wants him to do is just self-serving. The cross is love in every dimension, up and down and out in every dimension. It's Jesus pouring out his life. And this is the the truth that God wants to, to bring to us this morning. When we're acting outside of love, when we're disobeying God, when we're indulging ourselves, when we're acting selfishly and not thinking of other people, we have no right. We have no right to expect God to look after us, to protect us, to stop our feet from striking the stone. So, you know, it says in the Bible, like, you can't just live how you like and expect God to look after you. Proverbs, one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 6, how long will you slumber, O sluggard? That's the one that says, look to the ant, you know that one? Looks at the anto sluggard. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? A little sleep, a little slumber. But don't worry, God will look after you. Is that what it says? No. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little laziness. That's what it's saying. So shall poverty come upon you like a thief? You know, Paul says to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, the one who is uh, unwilling to work should just trust God for his food. Is that what it says? The one who is unwilling to work should not eat. There's this, you know, it's not just a case of just throw everything to win and trust God will look after you, because that's not love. That's just selfishness. That's not what God is saying. No, He's saying, as we love, as we pour out our lives for others, God will protect us and care for us. There's this amazing thing going on underneath it. So the opposite to those verses is, take for example, the way Paul's, the Apostle Paul says he lives. He, 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 he worked, while being an apostle, he worked in order to be able to give to those who are poor, to give generously to them. He worked so he could provide for himself, so he wouldn't be a burden to the churches he, he visited. You know, it says in uh, Proverbs 19, it says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to God. That's a promise of provision, isn't it? If you see someone in need who's desperate, who's poor, who needs help, if you give to that person extravagantly beyond what the world expects, then you can trust that God will bear you up on the wings, on the wings of angels. He won't let you strike your foot against a stone. Because why? What's the difference? It's a loving thing to do. You see the contrast. That's why Jesus gives us this beautiful principle of the kingdom. Do not worry about what you eat or drink or wear. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When we're acting selfishly, we have no right to expect that protection. But when we live in love, we have all of God's goodness undergirding us and holding us up and working with us. That is the promise of God. If you live your life for the sake of others, if you live your life trusting in God's commands, if you choose to love as he has loved you, if you freely choose to do that, it's not that nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's not what Psalm 91 is saying. Even that would be twisting it. Because it will often be painful. But you will have the eternal life. You'll be walking in it, swimming in it, floating on it. Every part of your life will have this promise flowing through it and underneath it. Because you'll be cooperating with God. All the angels in heaven will be cheering cheering you on. And all the saints in heaven will be cheering you on as you cooperate with him. You'll be blessed because you're doing the right thing. You'll have the satisfaction of walking in God's love, knowing it for yourself. 
You'll see his love flow out of you and reach others and change lives and bring people to Christ. And when things are hard or painful, or there's suffering, when God leads you into darkest places and it seems like there's no purpose to it, it seems like it's all meaningless, it seems like he's not coming through to you, then and then you have the promise of Psalm 91. That God will promise you, he will show you, there will be a day when you stand in the middle of the assembly of the righteous and you'll give testimony to God and say, yes, he was faithful. Maybe it won't even be in this, this side of heaven. But in heaven you'll look back at all the things that happened. And there won't be one thing in your life that's happened where you'll say, oh, I wish that had been different. Because God will show you how he's upheld you in all those things. That is an amazing promise, isn't it? That's what Jesus had. He had the fulfillment of those things when he gave his life on the cross. Not when he was, not if he threw himself off the temple, temple wing. But when he gave his life on the cross, he was cooperating, flowing with, you know, all the prophets. All of history pointed to that moment. Not what the devil wanted. Not throwing us off of the temple, but at the cross. Even to the point of being, it was simultaneous with the sacrifices in the temple. And everything, after all those thousands of years, everything flowed together in this perfect moment where God's plans all culminated in one thing. Isn't that incredible? Because he loved. He had this blessing of perfect obedience, of freely laying down his life. As much as we think about Christ's suffering, we must take hold of the fact that he says again and again, no one takes my life from me. I do this freely. Yes, he was killed for us. Yes, he was bruised for our iniquities and all those things. Yet, we have to remember, it was him himself who held himself to the cross, not the nails. He chose to be there. What a blessing to be able to perfectly obey the love of God, to love with the same love that the Father loves us. He had the joy of knowing that 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 action would pour out salvation to the world. To see your face and my face and all the millions, billions of people who would believe on him. And not only that, the transformation of the world through them. Grace pouring out through the church into the world. The transformation the Holy Spirit would would bring in, in, in every sphere of human existence. And the joy of knowing the wonderful power, the true extent of God's power to protect, not just from death, but through death itself. That his power, if love, as it says in Song of Songs, is stronger than death. That is amazing experience to enter into death itself and to be resurrected. God willing the same fate that will await us, that one day we too will experience the same thing. That even in death, however soon or late it comes to us, if the Lord does not come before, we will have that moment of waking up and saying, wow, it's more, it's more true, more wonderful than ever we realized. Yes, his, his angels are there to bear me up. Yes, he has stopped my foot from striking a stone. To live in love is glorious. For Jesus, his whole life, being born 
with no original sin like us, perfect human being, every single second, every aspect of his life was this pouring out of love. Everything he did was loving. He was like a a star, like the sun, (laughs) just burning bright, everything pouring out, heat and light of, of love beyond our imagination as a man. And for him to have taken the, enemy, the devil's temptation at that point would have been a turning point, like when Adam ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. The whole thing would have been turned around and that star would have become a black hole. Self-centered, instead of pouring out. Sucking in, taking in. It, was, it would have been a turning point and that's why it's such a profound temptation. Now, for us, This same temptation applies, but we are in a different situation. I don't think anyone here has been born without sin. (laughs) Unless you can tell me differently. My theology, as well as my knowledge of myself, and frankly you guys, (laughs) tells me it's not true. We are born like that black hole. We're born to selfish. Take you in, suck in, whatever. In our thoughts and our actions, words and deeds, you know, everything we do is just about ourselves. It's just our natural instinct. And God, by his grace, has saved us from that, hasn't he? He is turning us outwards from being curved in on ourselves to pouring out love. And everything he does through the whole Christian journey, through the whole of our discipleship, is to turn us outwards, to turn us outwards again and again. It's like the rising of the sun. I think it says in 1 Peter, I think. Like the rise, our salvage is like the rising sun. It dawns, there's a glimmer of light, but one day there'll be this noonday and we'll shine like Jesus shines. Every part of us will be, will be like him. We'll be pouring out love again and again. What can the devil do? He can't turn us in an instant in on ourselves like he did to Adam or like he was trying to do with Jesus, but he can turn us away step by step. He can fight against what Jesus, what God is trying to do in our lives. That's what the enemy wants to to do in us. He wants to rob us of God's gift. Of being so totally turned outwards that we share in the Son's joy eternally. He wants to take that from us. He wants to turn us inwards. He wants to say, you know, God's way is hard. It involves loss and sacrifice and hard work and disappointment and pain. Dying to yourself, he says, feels a lot like dying. Are you sure about this? Are you sure this whole burning like stars in the universe in this generation? Are you sure that's for real? Because if it's not, you need to look after yourself. Maybe even today you're in that situation, some pressing situation where you know there's obedience to God and you know it's hard and you're going through something and you just want to give up and look after number one for a change or test the safety equipment just to see if it's working. He's saying, think of all the things you'll miss. He's saying, are you going to be a doormat for other people to wipe their feet on? Is that what you want? Not by big temptations, but by small ones. To turn inwards, that's what he's trying to do. Our culture is, uh, I think this is a big one for us, our culture is obsessed with kind of me time, isn't it? self Obsessed with self-realization, becoming ourselves, becoming everything we're supposed to be, following our dreams, all that Disney stuff. And he tempts us when we're 
away from God's command to love others. It's time to think about you. It's time to look after number one. Your serving is, you've done a good job, it's come to an end. You know, Jesus rested. Rest isn't sin. Rest gives us strength, doesn't it? To serve God and to serve others. Rest gives us joy. Joy is, is, is our strength in the Lord. It's from that from which everything else flows. We love because God first loved us. It's not wrong to rest. It's not wrong to look after yourself. God calls us to love others as we love ourselves. He, loves, he calls us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You need a heart. You need a mind. You need soul. You need strength to love God with all those things. So it's okay to look after yourself. This, this isn't self-abnegation. It's not you know total selflessness that God calls us to. It's giving all of ourselves. That's different. But the devil wants to tempt us away from giving all of ourselves to you. The balance, if not all, to looking after ourselves. And so we live in a culture that is kind of obsessed with this endless filling of our lives with stuff. The endless expenditure of money on ourselves. And, you know, if you can just tip that balance from out to in. That's his goal. That's the enemy's goal. Things, distractions, objects, possessions. So me time, he tempts us with. He tempts us with self-pity. He tempts us with a testing of relationships, actually. You know, personally, sort of, I'm going to stay away from church for a few weeks just to see if anyone notices. That actually happens. The person you sort of, I'm not going to invite anyone round for my house for a meal because no one's invited me. Let's see, let's see how loving this church really is. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's not wrong to want the church to be as loving as it can be, but to turn that round into self-service, self-pity, that's the enemy's work, you know? It's big things, there are bigger things he tempts us with too. You know, sometimes God calls us to obedience that is deep and profound love, but it's incredibly self-sacrificial. You know, marriage is one of those things. I remember speaking to a lady some time ago. Was, um, uh, she was in a very difficult situation. Married, but her husband was in uh, some kind of long-term care. I think he either had dementia or multiple sclerosis or something like that. And he was basically not himself anymore. And she wanted to know whether it was okay for her to pursue another relationship. And logically, you see, she worked it through. She's like, he doesn't know any different. He's, he's as good as dead. <laughs> what does God say? Till death. Depart you. Trust him. In that situation, that the love that God would work in you and pour out through you, that is hard. And yet that is God's promise. That's an extreme example, isn't it, in, in marriage? But actually, the whole of marriage is a bit like that. And there are bigger temptations, there are smaller temptations. For mothers and fathers, Mother's Day, you know, the, the task, the act of being a mother is, involves incredible sacrifice, incredible laying out of, your, of your, your life again and again and again to the point where you think, what is, what is the point? There's a repetition, there's a kind of drudgery about that job that must at times make you think... Really, God, like, is, you know, is it all it's cracked up to be? Are you really going to deliver on those promises? 
And God's word shows us that's true because you, you guys, you're caring for, you're nurturing for the image of God. Not just human beings who are going to live and die 70 or 90 years or whatever it is, but people made in this image who are going to enjoy him and know him for eternity. You get to give birth to them. You get to nurture them and shape them. Pour out your lives for them. So yeah, it's worth it. But is it hard? Yeah. And will there be times when the, the enemy says, he's not going to get you to give up. I know fathers have given up. He said, I need to go and look after me. I need to go and travel the world. See the sights. <laughs> find myself. And abandon their families. I don't know many mums. I don't think I can think of any. But the temptation, you know, just to do half a job. Or just to do it without hope. To not throw yourself into it. That's strong. To be turned inwards. You know, and the other things God asks us to do. To forgive your enemies is hard and painful. And yet God wants us to trust him. This, this love I'm, I'm going to work in you is so incredibly powerful. So incredibly transformative. So wonderful. You have such an experience of walking in me if you do those things. Loving outrageously. Giving outrageously to people. It can be hard to do, and yet God wants us to trust him. When we do those things, that's the things the enemy wants to rob us of. But when we do those things, we walk in love. Yeah, and when we obey him in, in that, this is the promise that's the flip side of this temptation. In all those things, God is holding out to us the joy of the love of Christ. This ever-expanding, utterly fathomless, glorious, ever glorious, eternal love of Christ. He's saying to you, if you obey me in these things, if you pour out your life, if you turn from selfishness and you turn yourself outwards, you will be filled and overflowing. You'll no longer be a stagnant pool. Mired in the filth and stinking with all the rotten things that have grown up inside you, but you'll be fresh and clear. You'll be a stream of living water. It'll flow from within you, refreshing you and giving you life. You'll be like Christ. You'll, you'll, from, you'll begin to see from his perspective. You'll know what he knows. You'll start seeing his love pour out through you to the world around you. He wants to rescue us from ourselves, from collapsing in on ourselves, from just that horrible tendency that's in everyone to suck in, to, to, to never give out, to, to feed on others or to just feed ourselves or to feed our perceived needs, to protect our own hearts, to destroy and to be separated from God. So God says to us this morning, small temptations, big choices. The devil has big plans through these small temptations. But above all, to blind us, that's his plan, just this simple truth. It is heaven or bust. It is love or nothing. It is serving self and Satan, and it's his pit and it's utter death. Or it's Jesus and his cross and his death to self and his eternal life. Amen. Let's pray.